one might say. Yeah, that, that's another word. We're older, Coach. It's all right. Uh, in all seriousness, though, thanks for doing this. Appreciate oh, thank it. thanks for the invite. Yeah, you're uh, you're one of the people who like we'll get ready to go down to a conference, and like Avery will look at me and be like, "Hey, is Donnie going? You know, if Donnie's going to be there." <laughs> and it, not, yeah, just because we enjoy enjoy seeing you enjoy the conversation. So, well, um, in fact, he has, he has that effect. What's that? He has that effect. Well, Avery's already got like Avery wanted to do like a sub podcast just over Donnie's time at Colorado. Right. So if we get there, we get there. But uh, since he grew up in the Denver area, oh, cool. that's yeah, that's, that's pretty much all he wants to talk us to talk, to talk about. But um, but no, so I think there's an hour won't be enough time. There will definitely definitely need to be a part two um, with. You know, hopefully this goes well and you're up for that. But um, I'm going to start with one of Avery's questions, which is he was scoping out your website, DonnieMabe.com. Okay. And you've got a picture of your ring case, mm. yeah, yeah. which, right, speaks to a lot of things in one very quick photo, right? Success, longevity. But uh, he asked a great question. Is there a story behind the case itself? A little bit. Um I've had those, I'm not a big jewelry guy, first and foremost. I mean, I might've wore some in college a little bit, like I had a necklace or something. But then after that, I was like, I'm done with jewelry. And then you start coaching and you don't ever know where, any coach can tell you, you won't know where your career or path is going and if you're going to be successful or good or not good. So I started collecting these rings, uh, being at Texas, working with football, Every year it seems like we've got a ring with football and Olympic sports, whether it's volleyball or golf um, or tennis, men's tennis. We would always – they would give us these rings. And, again, I would try on the ring, and then I would just throw it in this, like, dresser at home. And, uh, you know, as you get older, as you said earlier, as we're getting a little more seasoned, you, you move homes a couple times and – I mean, I don't know what what do you do with all these rings? I'm like, they're just kind of like just laying everywhere. And uh so my wife's like, we gotta get a case for it. And so finally, I think the the picture on the website, uh Skip, we literally just got that case probably uh, a year or a few months before that picture was taken. And they were just strewn everywhere. There wasn't really a rhyme or reason. There were rings I didn't even realize I have because I I literally I just don't enjoy wearing jewelry, but um so now I'm very happy that I have them in a home, but now I'm a little bit stressed because I don't want to leave that case anywhere because you could just take all the rings at once. You could give it to me. I'll take it. Right, right. I'm sure you're you're collecting some yourself, the coach so. I'm chasing, chasing you. Yeah, so that's the thing with the, the, the ring case, Skip. It was a little bit of a – mostly my wife going, we got to organize these things because they were everywhere. So anyway. I like the, the humble – the humbleness of I've just got all these rings. I just don't know what to do with them. <laughs> I have all these I have all these things hey. that signify success and honest, hey, what, I don't what, that's what the kids say, goals, right? That's what they call hashtag goals, right? Big right. time. We're excited to have you on here, Donnie. Like for those of y'all who've been living under a rock or maybe not in this profession, Donnie's been doing this for a long time with a lot of success. D, you started doing this before I even knew what strength conditioning was. What drew you into the field over two decades ago? I mean, I'm just gonna be candid like uh, first of all, my blew my knee 
my senior year at Georgia, I played defensive line at Georgia, blew my ACL going into my senior year, which was devastating. Went into depression. Like back then, our mental health program back then was literally like, dude, you better suck it up and get your butt in gear. And that was my mental health talk back then. And we didn't, you know, depression was more ta taboo. So I struggled with my identity, went through depression, uh, almost fell out of college. Finally kind of got my act together and realized my career was over. Finished out my, my career at Georgia. And I could not envision myself ever putting on a suit and tie and stepping foot in any kind of corporate office and like, what am I going to do? And so the only thing that came to mind was coaching. And it's kind of that story of whatever you do in life. Right. It's like, I think the what's one of my favorite quotes, like the smallest keys open up the biggest doors. Mm -hmm. And so what had happened was I trained so hard in college and done it with such excellence and passion. This one coach told me one day, uh, E.J. Doc Crease, who passed away this past year, unfortunately, he says, hey, have you ever thought about coaching? And I was like, I don't want to – what? No, I'm not coaching. I, I'm playing football. I'm going to go to the NFL. I'm going to make money. So I just shrugged him off. When I blew my knee and tried to figure out, like, oh, man, I got to graduate and get a job, I started thinking about that conversation. He's like, hey, you would be good at this, I think. And so that's kind of what led me to the coaching career and field was – one small conversation randomly in a weight room in a hot summer day in summer of 1991 that didn't come to fruition until January of 1994. And that's kind of how long it took. So did you find coaching to be like a healthy way to sort of transition, but yet hold on to that previous identity? Because like something you said really resonates with me. I, I blew my rotator cuff in college. Right. And identified as an athlete, like to the point where I said I was ma just majoring in baseball at school, as opposed to actually anything academic. Um, and it, just what you said sounds very similar. And then I found that when I first started coaching, like I sort of half acted like a player, half acted like a coach. Mm -hmm. And it took me a little while to get out of that. Did you have any kind of similar experience in your transition? Yeah, I would say... My first two years as an intern at Colorado, I really struggled, like bad. So so much so, I don't know if even Clint knows this, but uh, I would call my dad on the weekends. I was 24, 25, would be in tears, hated it. And, you know, just like, I don't know if I want to do this. And I would secretly go to Denver and different places and apply for jobs to try to get out of there. But just part of my deal was I wasn't relationally fitting in. Um, I had a boss that was at the time was very demanding. We were working like 70, 80 hours a week. You know, I couldn't even afford rent. And I lived in Broomfield, Colorado. I lived in a shoebox. You could literally go, you could use the potty, wash your hands and grab something out of the fridge and cook uh, an egg on the skillet all within a matter of about a few feet. That's how small this place was. And I didn't even have a bed. I was sleeping on the floor, had an egg crate box for socks and underwear. And, and uh, now I did have, coming out of college, I had a 15-inch woofer uh, radio. 
that was that was like more important than like water and air back then. But I didn't have nothing to sleep on. And so my first two years of Colorado was was really a struggle because to your point, Skip, I was so used to everybody waiting on me and serving me. I had to change my kind of like approach in life and I had to start serving other athletes. And it became more about their career and helping them than it was about me. And so there was a big maturation process that I had to go through. It was really painful. And, uh, but once I made that flip and finally started growing up and seeing the bigger picture, I started to flourish, but it took two years to, so I don't, I don't always agree that you're always going to like what you're doing at first. I think we all start out as novices and we're really not very good at what we do. And you've got to go through some, some, those crucible moments, I call it really intense seasons of your life where you got to mature, grow up and kind of figure out kind of why you're doing your big why behind it. So that was a big thing. Just becoming a servant leader was kind of what was happening to me. Just learning my philosophy as a coach, which I live by today as Clint, Clint sees it. But uh, so once I did that, man, I loved it and it didn't, it didn't, it took off. So nice for you to say you struggled relationally, like, that's hard for me to see because, um, like, the Donnie I know is, I mean, you're all about relationships and you build them better than anyone I've met. Um, so that's really interesting to hear, like, the first two years. And you said, like, your philosophy kind of started to grow. What do you think – what was it that helped you kind of get over that hump in the first two years? Well, I think more than anything, um, just really going back to being a kid, my dad had always taught me never to quit or give up. And so – and I'm not I'm about to, what I'm about to tell you is true. I literally one night was so frustrated with my boss and my co one of my coworkers at the time. I woke up, I could not sleep. I was like, I'm gonna pack up my Bronco. I had a 1988 Bronco too. Um, and I was gonna pack it up in the middle of the night and just leave and get the hell out of Boulder. And just I'm done with this. This is not for me. This sucks. This is not what I signed up for. And I literally could not do it because I would have to face my dad, look him in the eye and told him I quit. And so that's what kept me going. And uh, that's the only reason I stayed in my job because I did not want to have to face my dad and tell him that I just tossed in the keys and, and gave up. And so, you know, th that was a good time of testing for me and proving ground. And eventually because I started standing, part of my problem too, Clint, was like I wasn't standing up for myself, you know, like being an advocate. So I had to learn to like professionally kind of stand up to my boss and one of my coworkers and like set some boundaries. And then once I learned to do that, that's a skill, right? If you don't know how to do that. Uh, once I started learning to do some of that, I started getting a lot more respect from, from my peers and bosses. And then that's when I started realizing, okay, I can do this. And so that made a big difference. I love that. I love that. So, I mean, you went through that. You said there was your dad. Um, I also, I'll be remiss if I didn't say you went through it with your beautiful wife, Miss Karen. Right. Um, so you guys have been riding for a long time. How long have you been married, Coach? 26 years. We'll be 27 this May. Twenty. I mean, a lot of young coaches, um, obviously, you know, but I'm recently engaged. Um, a lot of coaches talk about how hard it is to have a work-life balance and how can I have a family and still be in the career and put in my hours in the room and make sure I'm doing everything that my teams need and my athletes need and my coaches need. How were you able to do it? 26 years. You talk about living in a shoebox. How were you yeah. able to do that and then also maintain that relationship and be successful? There's, there's kind of two parts to this question. I think 
it goes back to my early years as a kid when you start looking at how you were raised, right? And so I was raised in a very dysfunctional home. And I mean, I tell you, if we would have reality TV back then, I would have been a millionaire now because my home, there was screaming and shouting and punching walls and people like leaving and doing like crazy stuff, man. And I, I, I was one weekend, I went to stay with my mom, wouldn't go see my dad. He went to get the cops, bring me home. Like it was wild, man, my childhood. And so I lived something. So my point of telling you all that is kind of like, I grew up in a home of so much pain and just toxicity and dysfunction. I knew I did not want a family life like that. Like there's no way that I ever want that. So whatever I need to do to, to, to have a healthier more normal family life, I was going to, you know, be committed to it. So with that being said, when I had to pick coaching, I had to pick either a sport coach or the weight room. And I'd, I'd seen our sport coaches. And when I was at Georgia, those guys never went home. And to your point, Clint, a lot of them had, you know, infidelity. Uh, wives leave. They were, you know, broken marriages, getting remarried because they were always on the road working and never home. It's like I knew I did not want to be a sport coach because I would never see my wife or kids. But I knew strength coach, being a performance coach, right, I would have more say. At least I would have an off-season to be home and see my wife and kids. And so that's why I chose that route. So that was one. And then secondly, going back to, you know, the whole marriage thing, um, I mean, even today, like you've seen this recently, but – I've really done, I've, I've put a lot of time and energy in being consistent and working on our marriage. Uh, I always say, if you don't work on your marriage, your marriage won't work. You know, and it's like, we, we see all these coaches today that put all this time and energy into their career field and they, they go home and they're exhausted. They got no energy for their marriage to invest in their, their relationship with their spouse. And they wonder why that relationship you know, is languishing. But if they would just take a fraction of that passion and energy and bring that to the house, right, and put that into their family and their marriage, it wouldn't be perfect, but it would be a lot healthier than it is now. So early on, my philosophy in parenting and, and marriage was I was going to make sure Karen and the kids were, like, integrated into my work. And there were times where she would come down to campus with the kids. We all go eat together or be on the football field or be in the weight room. And so maybe I couldn't always be home, but she could come up and be in my world the kids could see what I do. And that's kind of how we made it through those really stressful, high demand times of early in marriage with kids. That's kind of how we made it through. I love that. Skip, have you, I mean, you've been around it for a while too. Um, what do you think stands out about that? What Donnie said compared to like kind of what you've seen across the industry? Well, you know, it's interesting. Donnie alluded to something that, um, always alluded to this a couple of times, the idea of boundaries, right? The idea of uh, understanding where you need to segment your energy, right? So you can actually have a more well-rounded, I would almost use the word holistic life, right? Mm -hmm. And you, what you often sometimes don't see are coaches who are willing to set those, right? And that can happen, it seems like, for a lot of reasons. And, and I wouldn't say that's just coaches, Right. Yeah. I've seen people, plenty of people do it in the business space, in the startup space, sure. where they sometimes seem to want to reward themselves for working like 80 hours a week. Yeah. Right. But someone is suffering when you reward yourself that. 
Um, and I, so I'd be kind of curious to know, like, you know, Donna, you mentioned like bringing your family to the weight room or bringing them to campus. Are there other just like little, little things that you used to do almost like techniques where you kind of allowed yourself the ability to, to put energy where you needed to family or otherwise? Yeah, I think the one thing I do still consistently to this day, I call my wife multiple times a day and check on her, you know, and it's just, I think anytime you call your wife and let her know, you're just telling her, Hey, I'm thinking about you and want to see how your day's going. So that would help me when I would get home after a stressful day, she would kind of know what was going on in my world. And I'd kind of have an idea of her. So we walk in the, you know, we walk in the house at night, like we're not, you know, not understanding where we are kind of at that moment. So I think that has helped. I think the other thing has helped Karen and I over the years is just, we're pretty consistent. Like we do date nights, you know, we spend time. And, and I think those, those date nights are, um, what's that one quote I've always heard. I've always liked after every wedding comes a marriage. Right. Mm-hmm. So like after you finally have your wedding, you really, that's when the marriage actually starts and you start becoming closer and more, uh, uh, more knowledgeable and aware of like your, your habits, dislikes, you know, likes, uh, things that kind of tick you off, things that maybe rub you the wrong way. And so I think when you have date nights like that, that gives you time to come in. And, you know, I mean, some of our best conversations have been when Karen and I were, were younger in our marriage and her her mom ended up moving uh, to Austin and she would take the kids and Karen and I would get out and go on a date. And we would just catch up and see how we're each other's doing. And I mean, we get into some intense conversations sometimes, but most of the time we just kind of catching up and connecting. And man, that did so much for our marriage early on because you literally can get so busy as a coach, right? And as a stay-at-home mom, Karen was actually working and having kids. And like, you just start to grow apart, you know, not all of a sudden now you're, you're never around your wife. So you're not attracted to her. And over time that sets in and then, you know, you end up, you know, maybe doing something you shouldn't be doing. And so you've really got to, as a man, you've got to keep kindling that, that romantic flame with your wife and keep pursuing her uh, during those years where your, your time and your demands are super stressful. And it's not, it's, it's very hard to do. It's very hard for sure. Well, I'm over like here taking notes. notes. I'm over here taking notes, trying to get like you guys. Well, that's, that's where I was going to go. So you've seen you've obviously been in the weight room with Donnie and seeing how he handles things right mm-hmm. so has that already trickled down to you and your your life outside of of work you know it's funny um I'll say this now uh but I'm actually in a marriage class right now that Donnie's teaching <laughs> so I would say 100 uh, percent it's, it's been <laughs> yeah, it's been it's it's been pretty cool to like much an objective fact at that point <laughs> absolutely but it's been pretty cool to be able to emulate because like I said if you don't see it super often or if, if you do like it's not really pronounced like he is very much a family man but also a coach you know so you get to see both sides and he shines in both arenas and it's it's definitely really cool for me to be like hey you know that is something I could do because when you're a younger coach you know I got here when I was 25 and D-May, he'll, he would tell me uh, I was just grinding I was just in the, I was in the room just I was, in the room I had to, to that skip is I think there and I think this is something that you'd have to ask each coach individually. I think there's some coaches that feel like their family life probably holds them back a little bit, you know, whereas I don't, I don't, I don't believe that at all. I believe my family makes me a better coach. It gives me better influence. It gives me a better example. I'm more patient. I'm more understanding. 
I'm more compassionate with people because I'm dealing with a wife and kids that have real people problems too. So if I'm not living it at home and it's not at my house, why would I bring it and not live it at work? And you, you, I just don't believe you can compartmentalize your life where like I'm one person at work, one person at home. Yeah. I'm not saying you can't, you shouldn't have areas you don't share with people. There should be intimate areas you don't talk about and kind of keep to yourself, but there should be some continuity and integrity of the same person I am at home, right? And how I am at work um, should kind of have some, some overlap. One of my favorite definitions of success is this, right? To have the love, trust, admiration, respect of those closest to me. So I just don't want respect from my colleagues and peers. I want my wife and kids to look up to me and respect me because of the man, husband, and the, the mentor and father I am, how much they matter to me. I want that first, and then the other comes. If that the other comes, great. If not, then I'm okay with it. I don't have to have it. So it's cool. Everything he's saying. Um, like we'll talk about this a little bit later. But obviously, you worked in football for a long time, um, and one of your main focuses now is women's volleyball. And you watch Coach Donnie with women's volleyball, and you, it's so natural. And then you understand that Donnie's got four daughters at home, you know, and, oh, it makes sense. So his home life definitely trickles into work and you can see how well he works with those young ladies because that is his life. That's what he's done. Uh, so it's pretty cool to see that. Okay. My bad. Be made. I'm going to keep going back to it for a little bit. You got to bear with me. Yeah, you're good. You're good. How, how long have you been at UT? Uh, this is my 24th year. I'll be 25 in January coming up. I don't know a ton of coaches over 20 years in the field. Definitely don't know a ton of coaches who have been 20 plus at one school. Like what, like what keeps you in the field? What keeps you at UT? Like what's that thing that keeps you moving? You kind of heard me talk about this and you kind of see me do it now, but I just, I really believe you get in a school like this. Um, I mean, there's definitely, there's a lot of challenges at a big power five school, a lot of problems, a lot of bureaucracy and politics. Uh, I think number one, when you get to a place like this, you've really got to get good at winning people over. And, and then what I mean by that is you got to learn to like just earn their trust. It takes longer at a bigger school sometimes to, to earn that trust. So that just means you got to be really consistent in what you're doing. And I think as you kind of take time and earn that trust, then people buy into you as a person and then they buy into kind of whatever system or whatever you're, you know, you're selling. So I think that's the big piece. Number one, just learning how to earn people's trust and have that emotional intelligence of how you're coming off to people. I think that's so important. And I think secondly, uh, you've got to, this is kind of cliche, I know I'm going to say it, but you've got to just cut, keep finding ways to kind of reinvent yourself, right? Uh, Clint knows this, any coaches listening, you can really get stuck in a rut at a college, you know. Um, you're not going to have your boss or supervisor or administrators come down and go, hey, this is the career path I see for you. You need to do this. You need to get out of the weight room. You need to take these classes. You need to go meet with this person. You need to think and, and think about your career this way. Nobody's going to do that with you. So you kind of got to kind of got to hustle, right, and do it. I love the, that Jim Rohn quote um, that says, you know, work harder on yourself than you do at your job. And, man, that to mm -hmm. me is like spot on if you want to make it at a school for any amount of time. You got to be creative and kind of like work on yourself and kind of reinvent yourself as the years go by. 
and uh, it'll, it'll help you help you have some longevity for sure. What's been one of the most kind of beneficial reinventions of yourself? Would you say? I mean, I think honestly, it's, it's this is crazy what I'm about to say, but um, the hardest seasons of my life have produced like the greatest growth, and there's something about adversity and disappointment and discouragement that really makes you reflect on like, what, like, who am I? Like, why am I here? And what, what do I need to be doing next? And so 2007, I get promoted to top assistant for football. Uh, it did not go how it was planned. And I'm not going to get into the details of that, but went through a very hard situation with that. And, um, very discouraged and disappointed. For two weeks, I walked around in the weight room with my lips stuck out and my tail between my legs, like a little lot, you know, sad puppy. And finally, I was like, you know what? This isn't working. Uh, I feel terrible. I'm not doing a good job here. I need to either get over it or I need to get on with it. And so I decided I made a choice. I was like, I'm going to take so many classes on leadership and management and learn to lead better that either they're going to promote me here one day to a director or I'm getting, I'm going to leave and somebody else will. I'll get so valuable that somebody will see my value and promote me. So that was 07 for the next three years. I, I mean, I consumed like took classes at, on campus here, went to seminars, read books, listened to podcasts, and three years later, I'd probably earned a couple of different certificates in that here on campus and just got really good at it. It became a passion. Lo and behold, 2010, didn't even see it coming. They created this new position for a director of Olympic sports. And who would you think they would recommend? They said, you've been training for this. You're the man we want. We want to offer you the job if you want it. If not, we'll open it up across the country. I didn't, I didn't bat an eye. I said, I will take that position. <laughs> and so I was kind of getting ready for a position that didn't even exist. So I think you've got to always think about, right, the, the position myth is in the 360-degree leader. John Maxwell says this, right? The position myth says, I'll be a leader once the position kind of shows up. Hmm. That's a myth. No, you become the leader you want for the position that you'll have one day. And so that starts now. So you got to start thinking and preparing yourself and studying for the position you want now so that when it does show up, you're fully ready to take it. And so that's kind of what happened to me. Were there in that sort of period of study, you just mentioned one, but were there any other of the books or, or podcasts that you listened to that really substantially stood out where if someone's listening to this, they sort of want to start or set um, that you would recommend? Yeah. Them? yeah, I think uh, I always kind of share this one, but I think one of the best, leadership books is a book called the leadership challenge by Kuz and Posner. I think I'm saying it right. The leadership challenge. It's a pretty, pretty large book, but it's like the Bible on leadership, dude. It's, it's, it's research based too. It's not like fluffy or frou-frou. It's, he does a lot of research. They, they, they're very well known, very credible authors. And they, they research military stuff, corporate stuff, all kind of different types of businesses and they break it down. I think there's five different principles in that book on just what it takes to be the best leader you can be, but it is worth every second of your time. If you want to be a better leader, for sure. 
In your bio, you also use the term servant leader, which is something that I end up saying a fair amount. Um, how would you, for people who are listening, like just define the idea of being a servant leader? For me, it's like a picture, Skip, and you can see this in the business world too, in sports. Um, like it's so I always say if you could if you could picture a triangle, right? Like at the top, like the top down leadership, the leaders at the top, and everybody's kind of like looking up the totem pole, right? Like, oh, our 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 chief and commanders at the top, we're here for him, and everybody's serving him and his vision, and he's got all the perks, he's got all the privileges, he's got all the fun stuff, right? And then all the little servants below are like, you know, we don't have that much uh, influence and say. Whereas servant leaderships, you take that same triangle, just flip it upside down. And now you're the leader at the bottom. You have the least amount of perks and privileges. And you now you're pushing up. You're the people that are working with you are following. You're pushing. You're trying to help them get their career going, help them have better perks. You're fighting for their salaries, for their career. And so to me, it's just a mindset shift. Doesn't mean you don't have influence. I I really believe that the, the servant leaders have the most influence, right? You can always tell a top down leader because they have to remind you, hey, I'm the boss. You need to follow me because I'm. Whereas the servant leader serves you, the 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 follower, and you know they're the boss because they're laying down their their life so that you can have a good career. And so there's a lot more influence, and there's more loyalty there because you have to earn it. Makes total That's sense. Good. Yeah, I often, um, for, some, for some reason, in researching leadership and trying to get a little bit better myself, I stumbled upon how wolf packs work. Right. And most people think of the leader of the pack being in the front, but the way wolves work, the alpha is actually at the back. Right. And then the people who lead are like the older wolves, the people who move move, move more slowly, and it's almost counterintuitive to what people would think and it actually matches up with with That's flipping cool. the diagram well, I've so. read that yeah yeah i think you i mean you embody that d like i've been with you for a long time now um you guys go in his uh, office you'd see a plethora of knowledge a lot of books the guy yeah. reads all the time uh, but i mean a lot of it is on leadership so it's definitely been something that's been really cool for me to me to definitely learn from he's been my number one mentor in that standpoint let's uh let's dive into the fun stuff let's talk about some fun stuff all right you worked with we talked about the trophy case. You got the rings. We got the bling. I still don't believe that you don't like the like the jewelry because you know Georgia got the turnover chain. Y'all had to have that back in the day. Right. Um, <laughs> but like you work with some phenomenal athletes. Obviously, you're part of that 05 championship with Mac Brown and Vy. Um, what are some of the best sports memories that kind of stick in mind for you? You know, what's how how deep you want me to go on these? Well, Man, I going to start texting me about Cordell Stewart and Rashawn Salam in a second. So <laughs> as deep as you want to go. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to think of some funny ones here and some good ones. Well, one of my all-time favorite is uh, this was 2008. 100% we were in off-season 2008. Going, We weren't into the football season. This was in the winter. So January, February, kind of 2008. Uh, this was when Colt McCoy was here. Uh, this story I'm going to tell you specifically is about a guy by the name of Brian Arakpo. If you've ever met Brian Arakpo, the guy's a – he's retired now, but back then he was he was a monster. He's a dude. Yeah. Has a real deep voice too. And uh, 
He's our starting defensive end, ended up getting drafted. I think he got drafted first, second round, NFL, played for the Titans for a long time. Anyway, this morning um, we had started our workout. It was kind of toward the end of the week. And if you've ever worked with football, like toward the end of the week, guys tend to go out and drink Thursday night. We call it Thirsty Thursday, right? And so these guys, <laughs> we come in Friday morning, we check row at 6 in the morning. So we check row, everybody's there. And we would start off if somebody – had missed something, a class or whatever back then, you would do up-downs. And coach would just get your feet hot, spread it out, get your feet hot, I'm going to blow the whistle, we'll do up-downs. And so we start doing up-downs. So I'm just walking to this kind of covered tent area. Uh, it's dark, it's 6 a.m. One of the defensive backs says, hey, there's a so-and-so and so-and-so is outside the tent hiding. So I go out on the tent, look outside, and there's two of our starting defensive backs have slipped out the back door and they're skipping the up downs. So I didn't say nothing. I walk into the session, blow my whistle, interrupt my boss, and go, dog, so and so and so and so's outside the tent. They're not doing up downs. He just drops his head, points to the field, which just means we're going to the football field. We're about to do bear crawls, up down. It's about to be punishment. So we start heading down to the field and then Ratko starts sounding off. He starts cussing. Who was it? Tell me who it was. I'm going to, you know, bleep, bleep, bleep. So they, the boys start chirping and throw him under the bus. And so it actually ends up being Ryan Palmer, who they're like best friends, one of the DBs. They start chirping. They're right in front of me. They get into a fight and start throwing blows. Rackpo hits him. He, float, he flies across the, <laughs> the air, hits, a, hits this wall as we're going to go down these steps. And the, the boys separate him. We get down on the field. We get in lines, and Rackpo, we're trying to get you know get them all lined up. Rackpo comes out, stops us, the string staff, from talking, and is walking back and forth and goes, I tell you what, any of you MFs got another problem, you step up right now. And he was walking back and forth and just yelling. Like, if, if any of y'all step out of line again, I'm going to beat you, you know what. I walked to the other end of the football field. I wasn't staying near him. He was <laughs> – that he was that he was seriously that pissed. I've never seen a football team have that straight of lines like it was like military. And I'm and I'm not. I promise you, you can go ask anybody on that team. We never had another problem in the off season. And that that 2008, I think we ended up we lost to Texas Tech in the last seconds up there in Lubbock uh, with the Michael Crabtree. Oh yeah, yeah. And then we went. And we beat Ohio State in the the Fiesta Bowl. Had a phenomenal year, but. That story to this day is probably one of my favorite. Uh, that's leadership, wherein a player steps up, takes control of a team, but he can back it up too, man. That was an, just a joy of a season to work with those guys because guys were policing themselves. We did. We had to do very little. It was fun. Rathbone has spoken. Right? The, the first time I met Rack, I mean, his voice is so deep. It sounded like it was coming from Donnie's 15-inch subwoofer. Like, it is the deepest voice. Uh, it caught me so off guard. I was like, Donnie, who's that? Who, who, who is that? And should I leave him alone? <laughs> yeah, he was He was a very – he's a great guy. But he's a great guy. You get him – if you flip his switch at him, though, he's he's not he's not going to be fun to be around. Great guy. I, I kind of want another one. You got another one? What's another oh, yeah. One um, I don't know if I should tell this one, but I'm going to – we're going to launch out. It probably means you definitely should tell it. Yeah. So 2004, we played Michigan in the Rose Bowl. 
this is just the fun thing, funny things about college football, right? If I say the name Vince Young, you know who this is. Um, so 2004, Vince is a sophomore, and he's kind of starting to come into his own. And, um, you know, we had struggled for years. We'd had decent seasons, but this particular year, we finally got a breakthrough, and we I think we lost to Oklahoma that year, like 12 or 13 to nothing. We only had one loss, ended up going, came from behind up in Lawrence, beat Kansas on like third and 18. He gets a first down, like it's historic uh, play. Anyway, we finally make this BCS selection at the time, um, the bowl championship series selection. We get selected to play Michigan in the Rose Bowl. Huge for Texas football, for Mac Brown. And every we get up there and we're there for like nine or ten days. And for every night, the strength staff, we would meet down in the lobby and we would get a list of names to go check rooms for curfew. And if somebody was – it was literally you just go knock on the door. As long as you, they show you their face, like, hey, you're here, you're here. Okay, check the names, go to the next door. And then we would we would kind of rally back down in the, in the, the foyer and turn in if anybody was missing. And so sure enough – I'm not kidding you. I think it was – for sure it was multiple nights. Guess who was not in their room at curfew? Vince Young. And it would literally – that paper would get, like, folded up, put in the pocket, and walk <laughs> off. Like, like you didn't even say it. Like, did y'all just hear – we just said Vince Young is not in his room. And the paper get folded up, put in the pocket, walk off. And if you watch that game, Vince Young went off. He wasn't in for curfew. He gets Definitely. MVP of the Rose Bowl. <laughs> but could you imagine if you didn't play him? We would not win that game. No, just no chance. And so there's just a lot of those stories in college football that, you know, these are just young men that are for learning sure. the way, that need guidance, and, you know, sometimes dropping a huge punishment on them is not what they necessarily need, you know, even though some people won't understand that. But I'll never forgive that. Like, well – I'm glad Vince, you know, we didn't kick him off the team and send him back to Austin. <laughs> right. So, anyway. Well, that probably feeds into, like, a little bit more serious of a thing where, like, reading a room and reading the, your athletes and understanding who needs what, right, to get better. Um, this is definitely probably an art that you've been developing for 20-plus years. Yeah, I mean, every kid – you know, it's hard. It's hard for people to probably grasp this. I mean, Clint gets it, and Skip, you've been around it. But these are like kids that are super young. They don't. A lot of them come from, especially in football. A lot of them come from, you know, just rough upbringing. Not all of them, but some of them do. And so they don't have the life skills yet. So a big part of our role as coaches is to mentor and teach these these guys how to be men. And that's the part I love about my job is like it's bigger than the ball, right? And so a lot of what I've done over the years is just, I mean, I had a conversation with one of my athletes during a workout just this week about, you know, dating and how you should go about that and make better decisions. And, you know, and, and they listen, you know, whether you think they do or not, they may not always do what you say, but they're listening, you know, and if I just feel like, um, like that quote on mentoring, right? Kids today, they don't need a sage on the stage. They need a guide on the side. Hmm. So 
One of my favorite things, a, a book I just read recently, was uh, was called, uh, I'm blanking on the name. It's something about, it'll come to me in a minute, but the, the guy's name is Donald Miller. And it's a book about being a hero. And he talks about there's four roles in, in any kind of narrative, right? Any kind of book. There's the hero, right? Uh, there's the villain, there's the victim, and there's the guide. And if you watch any movie, right, um, those are the four roles. There's the hero, right? There's the victim. Um, there's the villain and the guide. And if you're going to live your life with purpose as a coach or whoever, you've got to live this narrative out in your life. It's not a movie, but there's got to be like what's going to happen in your life that's exciting. And so I find myself a lot of times, I'm not the hero in a lot of people's stories, but guess who I am? I'm the guide. Okay. And you go watch the movies. You, you go back to, um, what's a famous one? Uh, Iron Man. Who's the guide in that movie? Right? Could probably be Pepper, maybe even Jarvis a little bit. Well, who's the Pepper. Who, I'll take yeah, Pepper. He's got a guide, right, that's guiding mm -hmm. him to help make decisions. So a lot of times as coaches, maybe I'm not the hero, I'm not the victim or the villain, but I'm teaching our athletes how to what? Become yeah. the hero in their own story. And to, to not be – because here's what athletes will play. They'll play the victim. Mm. Because every athlete's going to have a villain. So how do you teach your athlete to become the hero in their own story? you got to have a guide. And so that's the role I play a lot. That's the quote coming from this one. That's the That was nice. I like that you dropped that. Yeah, it's kind that of was really good. good. That was really good. Be the Yoda. I don't know if I'm Yoda, but I don't know my hair. <laughs> well, my hair, get, my hair's getting there. Like we got the silver fox, you and I do. <laughs> I got like four or five. You'll see them coming in. I got a little, trying to get my little salt and pepper on. I mean, you talk about helping the athletes be the hero in their own story. Um, it's crazy. I'm, I'm building like my uh, guest list for the wedding and things like that. And I, I've got a couple former athletes um, that are on my guest list. And I'm like, wow, that means you've really had an impact on my life. Donnie, you worked with a lot of athletes. Like, who are some of those athletes that really impacted your life? Oh, let's see. I have to think. I mean, everything from, you know, even working like you think through like men's golf, uh, David Gossett, who he's not pro anymore. He was a pro golfer for a while. Guys like him that were super dedicated, passionate about what they do. Um, probably – Football-wise, uh, different guys I've worked with over the years, like a Tim Crowder, um, trying to think who else. Some of the DBs, like Brandon Foster, um, Colt McCoy, definitely. I've worked very close with Colt, and he had a tremendous impact on my life, not just as a, an athlete, but as a, some camaraderie of just how he carries himself in the locker room to, uh, uh, you know, for my volleyball team, Somebody, a girl by the name of Amy Neal, she's married now and just had her first child, but she's a five foot nine outside hitter that played like she was seven foot two, you know, played with passion and just grit and savviness, but wasn't always like that. Um, um, to some of my tennis guys, to like a Lloyd Glasspool, who's being very successful over in, in doubles right now, that you see him battle through all the injuries and hardships he had here at Texas how successful he is now. I think athletes over the years like that have just had an impact, 
more on how I think they've challenged, you know, who I am as a coach. And you kind of butt heads with them a little bit through those seasons. And then you kind of help them find their way. And then you look back and there's just a, there's an appreciation that they give you and respect that you've earned that just makes it, it makes it worth it. I think at the end of the day, we're all searching for significance. Right. And so to me, the, the, the impact and influence you have in your athletes' lives and then the memories that, that, they, that you have with them kind of create that significance in your life of how you've given back and they've helped you too become a better coach. I think it's a, it's a win-win situation. So, I love that. What would you say – we talked about coaching. What would you say the biggest life lesson you've learned from being a coach has been, whether that was from an athlete or just being in the career? What would you say the biggest life lesson is? I know you talked about your dad telling you never to quit or give up. Is that is that it, or you think there's something deeper there? No, I think at the end of the day, uh, if I could sum it up in this one thing, is you've got to really learn how to value people. And what I mean by that is the janitor to the president. Every person that works in this building has significance and they have value and I feel like though you may have different relationships with different people in different roles, whether it's the walk-on that's paying their own way through school or if it's the Heisman Trophy winner like a Ricky Williams, right? That we all have value. And I think the way you carry yourself, interact and, and treat those individuals says a lot about you, your person, your person or the character as a coach. And so the more I do this, the more it's so important for people to understand and feel, and I think they need to feel that you genuinely care, respect and value them as a person and what they do for this organization and university. I think that's so important. Would you say that's your why? Yeah, because what's the, after, I think the Eleanor Roosevelt quote, I, I may botch this, but like people may forget what you did for them, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. Mm. Right. And so, man, I want people I want people to feel like after they work with me, like number one, they, they go, man, you know what? He was not always cool and he was hard on me at times, but man, he really, he made me feel good about myself. He made me feel good about the job I was doing at UT. And he made me feel good about myself as a person, my self-esteem that I could do, go out and conquer the world. And so I would say that's probably my big why, just to value people and show them how important they are in, in this world and to help them achieve their goals. So. How long have you two worked together now? This is season eight. Which that's not, that's nuts to me. That's crazy. Yeah, this is season eight. Do you remember interviewing a young Clint Martin? And oh, yeah. Like what, what your kind of initial reaction was to that first oh, conversation? Here, here we go. Yeah, I think so. You know, it wasn't like, you may not remember all this, but it wasn't like his knowledge of what he knew about strength conditioning. It wasn't about, um, you know, how well-spoken he was, which he was, but he was so genuine and he was present on his interview. And the thing that, the thing that jumped out the most to me, like, we got to get this dude here. He had such high level social skills that all the other candidates, there were candidates that had way I'd say at the time we had one guy who had way better, more experienced resume than he did. Mm -hmm. But Clint's ability to come into a situation and just dialogue and make you feel at ease and not be nervous or uptight 
and to bring the the level of tension down, I was like, dude, this is uh, this is not normal. This ain't a normal cat. And so that was kind of what like this dude needs. We need to get this guy here, man. I don't know what this guy, what he's, what kind of juju he's got, but we need to bring that to Texas. <laughs> Appreciate it. What do you remember about uh, having to get ready to to talk to Donnie? Because I know you did your homework, right? So yeah, I did my homework. In. I did my homework, and I'd known. I actually we'd met. Um, it actually all stemmed from I came to one of their conferences down here. I came to one of their clinics um, just to learn, and I knew somebody else on staff, and we kind of hit it off. Like not even talking about X's and O's, just kind of just relationally, we kind of hit it off. Um, but I remember I was a little intimidated when I came down. Like I was, I was coming from the hoops world. I was men's hoops, but I remember being I was 25. Um, I was already at my second men's basketball program, kind of on the rise, if you would say. And I was like, man, I got to get somewhere where I can really learn. I can't be 25 and feel like I kind of felt untouchable. And I didn't like that at 25. And I was like, I, I need to get somewhere where I can really get a, among some really good people and just continue to grow. Um, so that was the real, the, the first thing that I wanted to come down and be here. But I remember getting into that room, uh, that interview room, and it was all the coaches. It was my second or third interview of the day. I think there were eight or nine. It's pretty intense. Um, but I remember after five minutes, because you know everybody's kind of cross-armed looking at you. And after five minutes, I remember everybody's kind of sitting back, relaxed, laughing. I think that's kind of what Donnie was talking about. It just they just really welcomed me. Um, that was that was the pretty cool thing. It just felt really natural right away. Um, and I think it's just kind of been a really good fit. Well, that seems clear. So. Like it's, you've yeah. talked about like Donna being at one school for a while, but it's also the case that like eight years is a long time for staff members to be together. For sure. Like, particularly now, it seems like uh, I hate the term turnover, but like people no. move in and out pretty rapidly anymore. And it makes like being people centric more difficult because you're constantly having to recreate another nice relationship and that kind of thing. So Kudos to you two, not to write your homework card, but kudos to you two for. I think it's pretty cool. It's that. kind of a testament to Donnie. Um, but I mean, we do a lot of staff development and we talk to a lot of other staffs around the country, especially with the transition to the SEC. Um, but our staff's been together for four years. Like our youngest guy or our newest guy has been here for four years. Um, that You just don't really find that anymore. And it's, it's pretty cool. But there's two other people in our office that have been here longer than I have with Donnie. So it's. I mean, you've got a 10-year, a 9-year, an 8-year. Like, that just doesn't really happen. Um, and I think that's really – it's really cool. Um, even, like, across the campus, you don't really see that. So, I think it's just, it's just something that's pretty unique. Um, but definitely is fostering good relationships and fostering success. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's, it's pretty clear, I think, if we go back and listen to this. Like, there's an underlying theme that hasn't been spoken, which is uh, – you both keep working at the things that are important to you, right? Mm -hmm. So like acknowledging, reinventing yourself. Well, what does that take? Well, a deep dive on leadership for what you say, three years where putting effort into consuming books, getting better, putting effort into making sure that you're spending that energy at home as well as in the weight room. Like, I mean, there's, there's sort of a cliche of trust the process, right? But it's not just trusting the process. It's it's putting the time in and sort of pushing that process forward. Um, and I think it there's thematically so many things you guys have mentioned that are just about doing that, like staying with it and a kind of an attentiveness to improvement. So 
for sure. I remember even when I came down to Austin, it was it was like, you know, I'm going to come down here. I'm going to kind of eat my humble pie, learn as much as I can. After I'm done learning, when I've soaked it all up, years, I'm out of here. And then I started getting calls for other jobs, and here we are eight years later, and I'm still here. Um, so I think that's just a testament to, like, how much I'm able to continue to grow as long as you're in the right place to thrive. Like, if you plant the seed in the right place, it'll grow. Um, so I think it's – it's I just had to find the right place for me, and that was, that's my first three years. I was at three schools. Like, I was – I get bored. I'm, I got to go. I got to go. If I don't feel like I'm growing, I got to go. And that's a conversation Donnie and I have had reinventing. Like, I've had to reinvent myself, and he's helped me reinvent myself multiple times down here and that's what continues to kind of help me grow and that's been great so i appreciate his mentorship in that standpoint yeah we we have a phrase we use around here a lot which is um and it's always a concern of mine which is just smart people get bored right it's true once once that happens uh you go downward like it may happen fast it may happen slow um but from a leadership perspective, I'm going to be curious to know, Donna, your thoughts, like when you think of Clint or a, a lot of the other people that have worked with you, like helping them understand um, and give them a path to actually get better. Because, you know, a lot of times people see leadership, as you kind of pointed out, as why well, have these people that work for me, uh, as opposed to giving them a chance to actually blossom and then shine someplace else, even if it's not, not with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, my thought on that is you kind of, and this is kind of like, this is, again, I'm getting I'm getting up there in my years of coaching. I can't believe I'm saying that. But, like, my thought is you kind of go through these stages of your career. Um, I think you got to kind of work yourself out of a job, so to speak. And so – I remember uh, this one guy talking about this one time, Skip. I forget the guy's name. I, I read a, I read some, a lot of, I, my background, I have a, a personal faith. So I read a lot of, I'm involved in our church. I read a lot of different books like that too from, from a personal faith. And this one, uh, this one minister pastor, for years he had, his passion was to build this, I think it was the Crystal Cathedral, like blank on his name. And he finally he spent all these years with this vision to build it. He finally built it and he and he finally he was bored and just lost his passion, was just his motivation was gone. And after a couple of years of him just wallowing, his wife finally got on and said, Look, you need to you need to find a new vision. And so he ended up, this is crazy what I'm gonna say, he ended up going and coming up with a plan to raise money and put together this because what it was, the cathedral would need to be refurbished. When, when he would die, right? His legacy. And so he ends up finding his passion and energy back again because he had a fresh vision for what he could do to for that next phase of his life. And I think you see it in coaches a lot. They get to the pinnacle of their career. To your point, they get bored or they just kind of get worn down, but they don't have that next thing, right? And uh, one of my favorite books, if y'all have never read this, it's called Halftime by Bob Buford. And he talks about that in the book, like the first part of your career is all about success from your, your, you know, mid twenties to your probably, uh, you know, early forties, mid forties. It's all about you. It's about your success, your elevation, your promotion, your skills, your salary, your influence. But at some point you peak out, right? The sigmoid curve, you, you kind of drop 
and then you kind of peek out at the top and you start to come back down again. So somewhere in that on the way up, you've got to figure out like what's your next sigmoid. You start that second sigmoid curve and it drops again, right? So that's somewhere in your late, you know, your mid thirties to, to early to mid forties, late forties, you start that second sigmoid curve and you peak out in the first one around in your fifties, early to mid fifties, you peak out and it starts to decline late fifties, early sixties. But if you start that second sigmoid curve, it drops right in your late, your mid thirties and you start, it starts climbing up again as that other one starts coming down. If you can see the picture And that second sigmoid curve is all about significance. Success is about me, but significance is about what I'm going to give back. I had a conversation with a coach recently here at Texas. He's in, uh, he's in his mid fifties and he doesn't know what he's going to do when he's done coaching. And so I started sharing some of these principles like, dude, you got to have, how are you going to give back when you get, you know, you get up in your, your mid to late fifties, early sixties and uh, case in point, Bobby Bowden, that's what he did. He was in his nineties when he died. My good buddy knew him really well. It worked with him at Florida state and Bobby, when he got into his sixties, seventies, eighties, he gave back still and, and helped a lot of people. So I think, for me, it's about as you get older, you start thinking about that legacy you're going to leave. Like you're, you're, you're doing, you're being successful now, but how can I help other people be successful once my times come up? And so that's kind of where my, my thought process is shifting. How can Clint be a, a director? How can Ann or Mel or, or these other guys on our staff, how can they be a director and be really be the best at what they're doing, whatever that's going to be? And so that's kind of how my thoughts have changed uh, as I've gotten older. That's great. And I know you got to jump off D so we'll, we'll, we'll get you off here pretty quick, but kind of to wrap up, like, what do you want your legacy? What do you want your mark to be? Oh, I think it's pretty simple. You know, um, as a dad, I want to see my girls do way better than I ever did, you know, meaning I want them to have a better start than I did in college. Like I had a rough start in college and they're doing it, you know, um, I want to see them, no, and what I mean by that is I want them to get their, get their degree and then have a uh, – I want to do – I've got so many connections now that I'm older and I'm already starting to help them with connections, to help them have – open up doors for them they couldn't open for themselves, right? So give them things that my dad could never give me. So as a dad, I want to do that. Um, I think as a husband, I want to – I want my wife to really enjoy these years when the kids are – you know, we're going to be empty nesters here in a couple of years – and I want her to really enjoy that season of her life because she's earned it. And so for her to do that, I need to be really damn good at what I do and make a good money so she can enjoy that season because she's given up so much for us. So that's my heart for her. My job, my legacy as a coach, I really want to – I see myself moving up into more administration and just hopefully paying people and, and putting people in positions and giving them the value and the worth that they deserve and to make a difference in this career that – uh Maybe I couldn't have made, you know, 15, 20 years ago. So that's my – hopefully I can leave that legacy and impact as I get older. So we'll see. We'll see. What else awesome. You're well on your way. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's awesome to hear. Um, I know you got to bounce, D. Like, it's been a pleasure. Appreciate you hopping on the podcast. Thanks very much for coming on, Donnie. Oh, my pleasure. Great conversation. And obviously, Clint, I I work with you and got nothing but love for you. But, Skip, appreciate you and – all the elite forms doing for UT because uh, you helping us get better too, baby. So much love. We're honored to be a small part of it. So 
Yeah. We'll do a round that'll two sometime. Be, that'll have to be part two. We'll get in all of that. Hey, thank you guys. It's been a been an honor and privilege. Thank you. All right. Appreciate you both. Appreciate y'all.